0: Welcome to Redemption Church. My name is Matthew, and I hope through this message you find truth, encouragement, and that it helps you grow as a disciple of Christ. Enjoy the message. Well, thanks for singing with us. Good morning again. If you missed it, my name is Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and we are really glad that you've decided to join us at Redemption this morning. We're in a series called His Name Shall Be Called, and what we're doing is we're looking at that famous passage, passage Excuse me, in Isaiah chapter 9. Let me read it to you. You've probably heard it before. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's a beautiful passage. We've heard it for Christmas years and years and years. But what does it mean that his name shall be called those things? At the beginning of the series, we explained that the phrase, his name shall be called, could also be uh, interpreted, his mission shall be. And so what is the mission of this prophesied king? Isaiah wrote 800 years or so prior to Jesus' birth. And what he's telling us is not just what to call the Messiah, but why the Messiah was coming. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the first name, wonderful Counselor. Two nouns. And we summed it up like this. Jesus as wonderful counselor means that he is the supernatural provider of power and direction for your life. Christmas gave that to you. Last week, we looked at mighty God. And Jesus as mighty God means he is the champion or the valiant hero who delivered a victory that can never be taken a victory over sin and death and the world and the devil, a victory that delivers to us eternal life, new life, and a powerful life, mighty God. As we're journeying through this series, we're doing so by asking ourselves three questions as it relates to each name. What does the name mean? How did Jesus fulfill the name? And why is that good for us today? And also as we're doing this, We're understanding Jesus better. We're seeing the complexity of a God who is both wonderful counselor, personal, and intimate, and also mighty God over everything. And so hopefully, of course, most through this series, we hope that we all adore, love, revere Jesus more. This morning, we'll look at the third name, everlasting father. Now, in the first week, I made it clear that wonderful was not an adjective describing counselor. Well, this week, everlasting is an adjective describing father. And so we want to understand what this term aviad, everlasting father, means. What does it mean that Jesus is everlasting father? It's exactly what we're going to get into as soon as I fix my microphone. Commercial break brought to you by Warby Parker. All right. Now, everlasting Father. It is a little bit confusing because when we think of Father uh, as it relates to our faith, we think of the triune nature of God. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so when we think of uh, or we hear Jesus as father, it gets confusing to us. Well, don't confuse it. This in no way is trying to mix the Trinity or calling Jesus the father. It's just a term, and we need to understand it. The term aviad, what it means is source or possessor. You could use the word prime or premier. And so hopefully I can help you understand this term This morning, we're going to start with the term everlasting, which is used 17 times by the prophet Isaiah. He wanted to get a point across. The point being that this coming Messiah was an everlasting Messiah, that he was going to create a never ending kingdom and he would provide access to that kingdom with irrevocable benefits. He wanted us to know that the everlasting reign of Jesus meant that his blessings to us are permanent, not temporary. His possession of us is permanent, not temporary. His love for you is permanent, not temporary. He's everlasting. I want to give you two ways this morning that Jesus is everlasting and three ways in this way that he's father. How is he everlasting? First, he's everlasting because he stays the same. The writer of Hebrews, we're going to be going to the book of Hebrews a lot this morning because the book of Hebrews is really just a doctrine of the person of Christ. So Hebrews thirteen eight says it this way. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He stays the same. Jesus is everlasting because he stays the same at creation when it was spoken into existence the Jesus who appeared in Christophonic form, the Jesus who Isaiah prophesied about, the Jesus who was born in the manger, who called the disciples, who performed the miracles, who was abandoned in the garden, who went to the cross, who resurrected from the grave who ascended into heaven, who intercedes on our behalf right now next to the Father, who's coming again someday, who will reign in the millennial and all to come. That Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. His love never changes. His nature never changes. His truth never changes. He stays the same. Now, that's important in a world that is constantly changing where truth seems to be constantly changing, where we argue about facts and how factual they are. Jesus stays the same. When something stays the same, what does that mean? It means that we can trust it implicitly because it will always be the same. It means it's reliable, reliable. It's weird to look at Jesus and say, he's reliable, like he's your Honda Civic or something. But Jesus is reliable. He always stays the same. The prophet Isaiah tried to sum it up like this when he said, he produces or brings an everlasting peace. If you can trust something, if you know it's always going to be reliable, what does trust and reliability produce? Peace, peace. And prophet Isaiah wrote it a few times, everlasting peace. That Jesus as everlasting, as always staying the same, should produce in us a peace. And I don't want to go too far into this because next week our title is Prince of Peace. And so we'll explain that more in detail next Sunday. But where we start today is that you and I have a God that Christmas gave to us, a savior who we can trust who is reliable, who should produce peace in us. So are you not at peace right now? Is the constant shifting of the world, is the um, inability to trust yourself, trust other people around you, trust those who have hurt you, trust those who you're supposed to be able to rely on, does that create a lack of peace? Look to Jesus. He's the same yesterday and today and forever let that produce everlasting peace. He stays the same. He's everlasting. The the second way that Jesus uh, is everlasting is he inhabits eternity. The the prophet Isaiah says it this way. In verse 57, uh, or I'm sorry, chapter 57, verse 15. He says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, This is what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. He is everlasting Jesus is because he inhabits eternity. Now this phrase um, has like worked its way into our common vernacular. When we say somebody inhabits something like they inhabit the, the White House or they inhabit the, the governor's mansion or they inhabit the CEO's office, what we're saying or implying is the person who inhabits the building or the place is in charge. Jesus inhabits eternity because he's in charge of eternity. Eternity didn't bring forth Christ. Christ brought forth eternity. It means he has no creation and he has no end. He inhabits eternity. And what is the one, Jesus, who is high and lifted up, what is he doing in eternity? It says here, he's reviving the hearts of the lowly and the contrite, repentant if the words lowly and contrite are words that you would say, well, I don't want those words associated with me. Let me warn you. In the scriptures, the lowly and the contrite are contrasted consistently with the high and the mighty. And every time the high and the mighty are outside and the low and the contrite are inside with Christ. There is only one way into the kingdom that we would become low, that we would see our lowness, but that Christ gives us his high and mightiness. And so what is Jesus doing? Inhabiting eternity, he's reviving hearts. Maybe your heart needs revived this morning because of the year you've had or the week you've had or the night you had. And your heart needs revived. It's, it's dead. It feels like it's barely beating. There's no emotion. You don't feel anything. You've already walked through some of the holiday and, and it's like nothingness. And your heart just needs revived. Good news. He who inhabits eternity does so to revive hearts, to bring them back to life. How does Jesus revive our hearts? He revives our hearts first through his presence. That's in part what Sunday morning is about. It's a moment for us to get back together in the um, congregation of the church, the family of Christ, and to let him through his presence revive our hearts again. And so we walk out with a sense of God's presence. We experience it in worship and prayer and in teaching, and and something begins to lift inside of us. Now, I know for some of us, it feels like our heart is so, so dead. And that Sunday is like a, it's like a little shop, but it barely makes it through the day. Good news. His presence goes with you when you leave. His everlasting presence follows you throughout the week. Another way that Jesus revives our hearts is through encouragement. For, for me, he, he encourages me through what I read when I open up the scriptures and, and I know that God is speaking to me through them and it begins to encourage the heart. That's why we encourage people to have time where you spend in scripture so God can encourage you through his spoken word, his written word. How else does he encourage us? Often by what we recall or remember. We're getting near the end of the year. And last year, uh, on the Sunday before uh, the end of the year, so almost a year ago now, um, I taught on First Peter, uh, casting your cares. And if you were there, you remember, we talked about the verb epi where you, um, you violently, with force, throw what you're not supposed to hold to God, so he'll hold it for you. And um, we demonstrated that through throwing toilet paper uh, rolls down from up there up to here, and it was really fun, right? Well, in two weeks... Um, we're going to kind of do the second part of that sermon. But as I've been thinking about that sermon, I've just been recalling all the worries that I threw to God last year, and their are dates in mind where he took care, took care of them. Recalling how good he's been to you and how faithful he's been to you. Just remembering, I was here, I was down. Jesus, I remember I remember when you finally took care of that at your perfect time. And that encourages and revives the heart. Another way Jesus revives our heart, by the way, is through people. That's another reason why we go to church. We're supposed to be surrounded by a family. If you're new around here, we say that church is a family. We're a family. And that means that we're here for each other, to encourage each other. This last week, I got the chance to encourage some people um, on your behalf. And uh, it was really fun, one of the f- most fun parts of my job. So I was on Facebook, and there was this thread about people in Perrysburg helping people in Perrysburg. And so like, if you need this, uh, and I have this, then we'll connect, and I'll give it to you for free. It was a really cool post of people trying to serve each other in the city. And I got on there on on your behalf, the behalf of our church, and I said, hey, my name's Steven. I lead Redemption Church, and we've set aside $1,000 um, this month or this Christmas season to help people in need So I told them, private message me your story. That way we don't have to like broadcast your need all over uh, the internet. But private message me your story so we can keep it a secret. But we would love to help you. And so I just put that on the post because I wanted to see if people would respond. Well, they did. And like five different families around Perrysburg sent me a private message. And on your behalf, we got to go to the store. We got to buy some Christmas gifts. Uh, we got to buy some gift cards. We got to go meet these families. Uh, we got to serve them in this way. Uh, There's a couple of, uh, of tears flying uh, or flowing. And, and, but there was one, one lady who sent me the story of her year. It was a bad year by any measure. I mean, by any measure, And in that Facebook message, don't you love technology? In that Facebook message, I got to remind her that God loves you and so does his church. In your horrible year, it was bad. Let us, I didn't say these words, but as I was thinking through the sermon, let us revive your heart. Let us remind you that there are people that love you, that don't even know you, but love you through some gifts for your kids. So you got to be a part of that this week, too. So thanks for being a generous church and letting us do fun things like that. One of the ways that God revives us is through people, which means that you, friend, follower of Christ, are a revival of hearts, too. That as you go in the presence of God, you then revive other people's hearts through your love and your generosity and your compassion and your prayer and your encouragement the one who inhabits eternity, revives our hearts. What is this to produce? The prophet Isaiah says it this way, an everlasting joy. So there's an everlasting peace that comes from his reliability, that he stays the same. There's an everlasting joy that comes from this. Everlasting peace, everlasting joy. Do you experience those? Do you have that? That's what it means that Jesus' mission was Everlasting Father, that his name shall be called Everlasting Father, that you and I would know a peace and a joy as we enter into his never-ending kingdom. He's not just everlasting. He's also Everlasting Father. So how is Jesus Father? Again, not to be confused with the triune nature of God. I'm going to give you three ways this morning on how he is father, how he is possessor or source or first. First one, he is father in that he is the new and better Adam. He's the new and better Adam. Said another way, he is our representative, our new representative of humanity. Romans chapter five says it this way. These are not the easiest words to comprehend, but I want to read them to you anyway, because uh, there's power in scripture. Romans 5, 12 through 15, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, our first representative, and death through that sin, and so death spread to all men, you and I included, because all sin, you and I included, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gifts by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He is the new and better Adam. Adam. He is our representative, the new representative of humanity. In summary, what that verse was saying is through our uh, first representative, through our first father of humanity, Adam, we all inherited sin, and that sin leads to death, and all of us experience it. That death leads to slavery, an emotional, spiritual slavery, and it leads to a death for eternity. And in Adam, that's the nature. That's where we get our total depravity. It's why we are who we are. It's why the world looks the way it looks. But in Jesus, the new and better Adam, we get life and Christ's righteousness. With Adam as our new, or I'm sorry, with Jesus as our new representative, with with Jesus as the better Adam, we get His righteousness. In Adam. All get sin and death. In Christ, all can come alive. He's your representative. It means when you and I walk through life now and, and we feel the weight or the pain, uh, of sin, uh, when we think, I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. I've got to earn it more. Uh, we don't have to feel that way. All we have to do is look and say, uh, I'm with Him. I'm with Him. Jesus is my, he's my new representative. I'm not with Adam. He doesn't represent me anymore. Jesus now represents me. And so I get to live in Jesus' righteousness because he's my representative. It's one of the irrevocable benefits of being in this never ending kingdom that Jesus created for us. You are always. Always, now, if you are in Christ, represented by Jesus. If you sin, you're still represented by Jesus. If you fall short, you're still represented by Jesus. If you don't think you're living up in righteous standards, you're still represented by Jesus. It's irrevocable. He's your new rep. He's the new and better Adam. That's how he's father. He's our representative. The next way he's father is he's the fulfillment of the law or he is the founder of a new way. Back to Hebrews. The writer says it this way. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Or he's father in this. He is the founder of a new way. Or said it differently, a new covenant. Jesus created it. We would never look at uh, the founding fathers and ever confuse them as our actual fathers. We call the founding fathers of this country our fathers because they um, formed or created the new way, the, the new constitution, the new style of government, right? Jesus created a new way. He formed a new path. The old path, the first path was the path of the law. As the previous passage told us, it leads to sin and death. We couldn't live up to it. In all of its fulfillment, Jesus shows up. He founds a new path and a new way. And now you and I can leave in that new way forever. He's the creator of it. Oh, and he created it to be good. In the new way, the currency is grace. It's the operating rules of the new kingdom, grace. His grace poured out for you and I. He started, founded a new way. Jesus is the never ending new representative and he created a new path, a new covenant, a new way that is never ending. We will never have to go back to the law which means stop putting it back on yourself. That's why Paul wrote Galatians. Stop it, he said. Jesus created a new way, the way of grace, the new covenant. Have you stepped into it? Have you, have you walked into the new covenant that Jesus provided access to? Or are you maybe like the Galatians, still thinking your salvation is your own quest? your own path? Are you still trying to live under the old path? Please stop. It's so hard and heavy. The new way is so much better. And Jesus created it. I want in. I hope you do too. He's everlasting father. Father in that way. The new and better Adam, the fulfillment of the law. And thirdly, he's the founder or the author of our salvation. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says again. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus initiated our salvation. Jesus upholds our salvation. Jesus keeps us in our salvation. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. I like the word author here. It means that Jesus wrote your redemption story. Jesus wrote my redemption story. He's the author of salvation. It means the the book of my salvation story. When I tried to write it, or when you have tried to write your own salvation, maybe yours looks something like mine. I've worked really hard. I've tried to be good. Flip the page. It isn't working. Flip the page. But I'm trying again. Flip the page. I heard something new. Maybe this will help me as I'm trying. Flip the page. It isn't working. When we write our own salvation story, it's something like that for pages and pages and pages. And it never gets to an ending at the end that you stand up and say, This is a great book. Instead, if that's the salvation story, if that's you and I writing our own salvation story, that's the only story we could write. I've worked, I've tried, I've done, I failed, I'm trying again. But then when we let Jesus write our salvation story, when he's the author of the story, you read the book and you say, I tried, I tried and tried and I failed and I failed and I tried again. Or if you're like me, you get to this page when you're 21 years old and you're outside in a car in the middle of, um, well, a part of town that you're not typically in and you're sitting in there and you're sobbing because you finally realize, I can't do this. His grace washes over you. And you go, this changes everything. You mean it really isn't at all about what I do? It really has everything to do with what he did. That's a really good ending to the book. Friends, some of you are stuck in the middle of the book right now. You're still trying, you're still doing, you still think you can get to the end of the book and write, I finally did it. You'll never get there. Let Jesus write the final pages. Let him author your salvation. Let grace pour in. Finally realize it's not about what you do. In any way. He is the author and perfecter of salvation. He has to write it. He's everlasting Father. He stays the same. He's everlasting Father uh, in in the sense that he inhabits eternity, joy, and peace. He's Father. Then whom better Adam? The fulfillment of the law, the author of your salvation. Then at the end, what is all of this supposed to produce in us? Well, the writer of Hebrews says it this way at the end. All of this, the fact that Jesus created this never-ending kingdom and provided you access to it with irrevocable benefits, the writer of Hebrews tries to sum up what it all means at the end of chapter 12 when he says this. Therefore, because of everything I just said, therefore, let us... Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let me just ask you this morning. Are you grateful for Jesus? Are you grateful that Jesus rescued you? Are you grateful that Jesus went to do the work that you could never do? Are you grateful uh, for the fact that you were dead in sin and he brought you to life? Are you grateful that Jesus stays the same so you can rely on him and trust on him and it brings everlasting peace? Are you grateful for the fact that he's inhabiting eternity? He owns eternity. So therefore you and I can have everlasting joy. Are you just grateful for that? Like, does it just stir something up inside of you that says, thank you, Jesus? Well, let me, by the way, tell you how you know if you're grateful. Thankful, grateful for what? Well, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, I'll get to that part I just mentioned in a second. First off, this kingdom can't be shaken. When you step into the kingdom of God, when you step into it, the kingdom that is in this world but that is not of this world. Those of us who are in Christ, it's like we're in this. We're in this kingdom that, and the rest of the world is is existing. And it's not that we separate ourselves from it. We're just kind of cocooned. There's a protection because we're in the kingdom that can't be shaken. This world can be shaken by nature, it can be shaken by government, it can be shaken by war, it can be shaken by economy, it can be shaken by tragedy and trial in our lives. So many things can shake up this world, but when we exist in the kingdom, we exist in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's why the Christian can say, enemy, you can throw your worst at me, but I'm in a kingdom that can't be shaken. You can try to make me afraid, but I'm in a kingdom that can't be shaken. You can throw enemy and opposition against me, but I'm in a kingdom that can't be shaken. You can throw your worst. I'm in a kingdom that can't be shaken. You exist in that kingdom. Jesus gave it to you. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Is yet yeah, there's just one appropriate response. A scary phrase. An acceptable worship. Let me ask you. What do you think is an acceptable worship to the one whose name shall be called Everlasting Father? To the one who stays the same, inhabits eternity, created the new way. What do you think is an acceptable Worship to that God, to that Messiah. I would think anything short of saying, "You can have all of me. You can have all of me, whatever you want, would fail to hit that standard an acceptable worship to the everlasting Father. We gave you access to a never-ending kingdom with irrevocable benefits, joy, peace, the covenant of grace. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, I want to encourage you to click the subscribe button so you don't miss a thing. And if you haven't already, we would love for you to join us for one of our services, Sunday, 10am in the Levis-Commons Movie Theater. I would also like to invite you to our Christmas Eve service at The Barn. For more information, you can visit experienceredemption.com forward slash The Barn. Have a great week.